This is our last passage from the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus speaking, starting from verse 13, chapter 7, verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, And the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Thanks, Cam. Looking forward to having you up here again one day soon. Good morning, everyone. My name is Mark. If we haven't met, I'm the not wet behind the ears associate pastor. That was a, that was a good pump up. Thanks, Chris. Perhaps you've had the experience of someone who you've known for a while doing something so bad that you actually, you begin to wonder, did I ever actually know the real person? Now, flip that around, just imagine the shame of someone coming to feel that way about you. Did I ever really know the real Mark? It's not a nice thought. Now, imagine if it wasn't a friend or a family member who was saying that, but it was Jesus on that last day telling you that he never knew you. That's the weight of this passage that we've just had read. People who called Jesus Lord, being told by him, depart from me, I never knew you. These are devastating words. And perhaps hearing them has made you wonder, how can I be sure that that won't be me? If people who performed miracles in Jesus' name aren't assured of being saved, then Why should I be so confident? But they're words which, if we understand them properly in the context that Jesus gives them, far from causing us to fear and doubt, we can actually hear them with great confidence. So let me pray that I would explain them in a way that's faithful to the way that Jesus first proclaims them. Father in heaven, thank you for your word, even the parts of your words that are scary and challenging in many ways, and we pray that as we look at this passage, 
you would help me to explain it clearly and faithfully and that you would help us all to come away understanding it and knowing you better. Amen. Well, hopefully you got a service leaflet as you came in with a, a sermon outline on the inside. That just gives you a bit of an idea of where I'll be going over the next few minutes and also gives you a chance to take notes if you're the note-taking type. It'd be great to keep your Bibles open to the passage that Cam's just read for us as well. That'll help you to follow along. And what we see in this passage is that there are two ways to live. There's the way of life and there's the way of destruction. There's two ways to live, but only one way to life. And the way of life is found by hearing Jesus' words and putting them into practice. This is the conclusion to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which we've been looking at over the last few weeks, which are his mission instructions to his disciples. And he tells them, verses 13 and 14, that they have the choice between two paths. There's the the small gate and the narrow road, which few people find, or the wide gate and the broad road, which many people enter through. And he urges them to enter the narrow gate, to walk the narrow road, which means to follow him, right? means to be a Christian. Well, yes, but he's talking to disciples who have left their fishing boats behind. They've jumped out of their boats to follow Jesus. So why would he be telling them to do something that they've, they've already done following him? The small gates and the narrow road here surely describe the costly and challenging call to discipleship that Jesus has outlined throughout the Sermon on the Mount. It's a life of spiritual poverty, of loving and forgiving our enemies, of doing good works to be seen by God rather than being congratulated by other people. It's a life of seeking treasure in heaven rather than on earth, not allowing material things to be our master. And it's a life of being persecuted for Jesus' sake. The, uh, the Greek word for, for narrow in this passage implies being compressed uh, so 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where the Apostle Paul is talking in a context of persecution, he uses the word to explain being hard-pressed on every side. So this, this idea, not just of narrowness, but of compression and oppression as well. The wide path is one that it's taken not just by people who reject Jesus entirely, but by people who refuse to follow Jesus on his terms. Now, I've never run a marathon before, but I'm pretty confident if there was a marathon happening in, say, September, October or something, I'm pretty confident I could train myself to get to the point where I'd be able to run that marathon and and finish that race. Pretty confident about that. But it would take a lot of hard work. It would take a lot of training, a lot of running, a lot of pain, a lot of not eating foods that I really like eating. And to be honest, it's, it's just not worth it. That's a, na- a narrow path that I'm not willing to run down, run down, no, I'm not willing to, to go down. But ultimately, the most important thing about these two paths is where they end up. There's the narrow, difficult path which leads to life and the, the broad, wide, easy path which leads to destruction, as Simon illustrated in the kids' talk just earlier. And so there's a lot riding on which path we follow. 
And this leads Jesus to tell his disciples to watch out for false prophets. Verse 15, second point on the outline there, two trees. Now, I take it that there's, there's a logical flow to Jesus' words here. And so the false prophets here are people who would lead people to take the easy path rather than the difficult one. Now, a prophet is someone who assumes to speak God's words. So we don't really use the word prophet much in a, in a contemporary sense, but applying this to our church today, we're, we're thinking uh, ministers, we're preachers, Bible study leaders, children's leaders, basement leaders, really anyone who, who has some role in speaking and teaching God's words to others. And Jesus tells us three things about these, these prophets. They're dangerous, they're distinguishable, and they're doomed. So firstly, they're dangerous. Verse 15. Jesus describes them as ferocious wolves in sheep's clothing, which is both a ridiculous but a gruesome image, isn't it? This picture of a, a wolf somehow putting a, a sheep's costume on and managing to go into a flock of sheep and the sheep not realize what's going on. But then, of course, the wolf, it's implied that once the wolf gets in there, he was going to rip off that sheep's clothing and destroy the sheep brutally. We see something of that in Acts chapter 20, where the apostle Paul is warning the Ephesian church that false teachers are going to come in. He says, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. So the flock being the church in that passage. Men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples. So these false teachers are dangerous because they lead people away from the gospel message. The gospel or the, the good news message is that because of sin, there's a, a relational barrier between us and God that we're unable to cross by ourselves. But Jesus crossed it for us by his death and his resurrection, which secured for us forgiveness of sins, a right relationship with God, and the hope of eternal life if our trust is in Jesus. Accepting this gospel message is the only way that we can be saved. And so anyone who distorts this truth and, and leads people away from it is extremely dangerous. Though they probably won't look all that dangerous, will they? When you see movie villains like the, the Joker in Batman or that, all that sort of thing, they just look dangerous, don't they? They're, they're specifically designed to look dangerous. But a false prophet probably won't look any more dangerous than I do or Chris does up the front of church. So we need to carefully discern what we hear from those who teach. Does it line up with the truth of the gospel message as the Bible proclaims it? We need to discern not just what we hear from those who teach, but from what we see from those who teach as well. Because Jesus tells us that false prophets will be distinguishable. What fruit are they producing? Is it good fruit or is it bad fruit? Because the quality of the fruit says a lot about the quality of the tree. Remember a few chapters back, we, we ran into John the Baptist who came proclaiming about the kingdom of heaven and he told the Pharisees that they needed to produce fruit in keeping with repentance, which means that repentance and obedience needed to be evident in their lives. And Jesus, he's saying the same thing here. 
So if you want to know whether you've got a good minister, a good small group leader, a good basement leader, don't just listen to what they say, although that's very important as well. Look at their life. Are they walking the narrow path of discipleship? Is their life characterized by repentance and obedience? And it's a challenge, isn't it, for those of us who handle God's word in some way, for those of us who who teach or lead others in some way. Will people who carefully observe my life over a period of time see me bearing fruit in line with the way that Jesus wants me to live? It's a challenging question. These false prophets are dangerous, they're distinguishable, and they're doomed as well. We come to these frightening words in verses 21 to 23. People who thought they knew Jesus, but they didn't. Or more to the point, Jesus didn't know them. They weren't truly his people. Even though by all appearances, they'd had successful Christian ministries. We see them here proclaiming all the things that they've done in Jesus' name, and yet Jesus says, I don't know you. And so the question to ask is, how do I know that this won't be me? You know, if there are, there are people who have got successful Christian ministries being turned away, how do I know uh, that it won't be me? Well, a few things to notice here. Firstly, these verses are connected with what Jesus has just said about false prophets. So they are the ones that Jesus is referring to first and foremost here. And the problem is that they're calling Jesus Lord, but they're doing so insincerely because they're not living with him as Lord. They're not doing the will of his Father, which is hypocritical, really, because Jesus, in the Lord's Prayer, which we saw a couple of weeks ago, has taught them to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. So they're calling Jesus Lord, but they're not living under Jesus' lordship. So, is Jesus saying here that he's going to reject us if we fail in any way to do God's will? Is that what he's saying here? Well, no, he isn't, because we all fall short. We all sin. So how do I know if I'm living with Jesus as Lord? How do I know if I should be frightened or comforted by this passage? Well, Jesus hasn't left us hanging here. In fact, he's actually given us the answer right at the start of the Sermon in the Mount, back in chapter 5, verse 3, where he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the key verse here. The sure sign that I've made Jesus my Lord, that I'm progressing down this narrow path, um, is that I've owned my spiritual bankruptcy. I've acknowledged that on my own, I'm never going to be good enough for God. I'm always going to fall short. But Jesus has done what I could never have done. He's lived the perfect life that was pleasing to God, and he's died in my place to take the punishment that I deserve. Jesus squeezed through the narrowest of gates and walked down the narrowest of paths for me. And now my life is one of repentance. It's striving to to bring all areas of my life under Jesus' lordship. Hating sin when I recognize it, 
in my own life and bringing it before God and asking that he would change me. So if you know that you fall short, if you're grieved by your sin, if your life is one of repentance, then these frightening words of Jesus aren't ones that you need to fear hearing. But perhaps there is a challenge in Jesus' words that you need to hear today. Are there areas in your life where you know that God's will is not being done and you're comfortable with it? Are there areas in your life that Jesus isn't Lord over and just at this stage, you don't intend to make him Lord? It's just not the right time. Perhaps this idea of being spiritually poor is just one that you've never thought about before. You've never owned um, that spiritual poverty on a personal level. One thing that we can't come away from this passage thinking is that we can have Jesus as our saviour, but not have him as our Lord. And to get the difference between those two things, wanting the blessings that Jesus offers without being willing to walk the path of discipleship that he calls us to. When I, this is one for the high school students out there. When I was in high school and I had a, a difficult exam or test or something that I was doing for maths or physics or whatever, I'd do my best, I'd get, get through the test, get, get to the end of it, and if there was a bit of time left, I'd go back over each of the questions and I'd, I'd do a rough calculation. I'd see how many marks were available for that question and then I'd calculate what's, what's the bare minimum number of grades I reckon, I reckon I've got with this. I might have got four out of six for this one, maybe three out of four for this one. I'd, I'd add it up and I'd get to the end and if I was above 50%, I'd be, I'd be pretty happy. With that. I mean, you know, you like to get a fair bit more than 50%, but I figure if I've, if I've passed, that's, that's kind of a, the low water level mark. There's no bare minimum like that with Jesus, though. We can't fall into a mindset that it's okay to give Jesus some parts of my life, uh, but keep others for myself. Because that's not making Jesus Lord. That's just trying to take the easy path. There's no part of our lives that Jesus doesn't have rightful lordship over. So is there anything that you're holding back from Jesus? Something in my, my thought life, my social life, just the, the things I do when no one else can see. Something that I'm just not quite ready for Jesus to have right now. Maybe one day he can have it, but just not quite yet. It's a challenging question to think about. There are two ways to live. And Jesus illustrates them with the example of two houses. Two houses that probably looked quite similar, if not exactly the same, from the outside and maybe even the inside as well. But one was built on a solid foundation and the other one wasn't. And when the winds and the rain came, it became pretty clear which one was which. The point is, there's wisdom in building our lives on Jesus' words, hearing and obeying Jesus' words. And there's a foolishness in not doing so. In fact, whether or not we obey Jesus' words has eternal consequences. That's been the message of this whole passage that we've, that we've read. So what is it that actually saves us? Is it faith in Jesus alone? Or is it walking the narrow path, doing the will of our Father in heaven, doing 
putting Jesus' words into practice. Is it something that Jesus has done for us? Or is it something that we do for Jesus that saves us? This is a question that really caused me a lot of confusion early on in me exploring Christianity, that just having that confusion about what it is that actually makes us right with God. Well, the only way that we can be made right with God is by Jesus' finished work on the cross. There's nothing at all that we can add to that. We're saved by God's grace to us in Jesus alone, which we have access to through faith in Jesus. But even though it's faith alone in that sense that saves us, faith is never something that acts alone. The nature of faith is it's something that never stands alone. Genuine faith in Jesus is naturally going to overflow into a faithful and obedient life. It's a bit like I tell Alicia, my wife, that I love her from time to time. Seems like a a nice thing to say. She responds favorably to it, and I actually mean it, more importantly. Uh, But if there was nothing I ever did to express that love, you know, if we got to our our 30-year anniversary and I told her that I loved her, and then I looked back and I realized I hadn't actually done a single loving thing to her ever, which isn't true, I have, but if (laughs) hypothetically... You'd have, to, you'd have to wonder, do I actually love her? Or is it just empty words that I'm saying? Because actions do speak louder than words. And that's what we see throughout the Sermon on the Mount. The life of discipleship begins with acknowledging that I'm spiritually poor. That's, that's the starting point. There is no other start to a relationship with Jesus than that. It's acknowledging that I depend entirely on God's grace. And the overflow of that genuine, heartfelt repentance in my life is going to be mercy. It's going to be hungering for righteousness. It's going to be all the things that Jesus talks about throughout the Sermon on the Mount. It's being willing to be insulted and persecuted for Jesus' sake. Living a distinctive life that brings glory to God rather than to me. Showing love to my enemies not idolizing material wealth, not being judgmental, treating other people as I would like to be treated, doing God's will, putting Jesus' words into practice, understanding the cross, the the grace that God has shown us through Jesus in his death, and calling Jesus our Lord and our Savior, it overflows into living obediently under his lordship, now, earlier, I, I likened the narrow path of discipleship with running a marathon in terms of the, the difficulty of, of preparation and the, the question of whether it's worth the difficulty or not. Of course, the difference is that with a marathon, it's me that's doing the work. I do the training. I get myself up to a, a fitness level. I carb load or cut carbs or whatever you're meant to do. I'm the one that runs the race and crosses the finish line. It's my achievement. For a disciple of Jesus, though, the work has been done for us. Jesus has finished the work. The narrow path of discipleship is our response to that finished work. So two paths, two trees, two houses, one Lord. We read in verses 28 and 29 that the crowds who heard these words were amazed at Jesus' teaching because he taught with authority. 
Now, I've always read that and assumed that there was just an aura to, to Jesus as he preached these words. There was just, he had such a, a sense of authority about him. He knew what he was talking about. There was almost a glow coming from him, which is, I mean, that's probably partly true, but I think what it's talking about here is mostly the authority that Jesus is claiming with his words in this Sermon on the Mount. We saw back in chapter 5, verse 17, that Jesus has said, I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets. So he's come to fulfill God's word. That, that is a huge claim to make. And in chapter 7, which we've seen today, Jesus has said that he is going to be the one who judges all people. His words are the standard by which people are judged. So this is huge authority that Jesus is claiming here. Jesus comes with full divine authority to fulfill God's word and to claim lordship over all people. So there are two ways to live. There's the way of life and the way of destruction. And the way of life is found by hearing Jesus' words, accepting them as being authoritative and putting them into practice in our lives. So is that the way that you've chosen? If you're not sure, please don't leave here this morning wondering. Come and have a chat to me, have a chat to Chris, have a chat to whoever you feel most comfortable talking to about that. We want you to leave here today fully confident that if you've owned your spiritual bankruptcy, if you've thrown yourself on God's grace, if you've begun a journey of repentance and aligning your life with Jesus' words, then Jesus knows you. If you know that that's not where you're at yet, but you'd love to be there, then please, we'd love to help you to take those next steps forward. If you have any questions, we'd love to help you with those. Please don't leave here this afternoon wondering. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus and for these hugely challenging and yet hugely comforting words that we hear from him. Uh, we thank you that Jesus did what we could not, that he paid the price for our sins when we could not, and that because of him we have access to you. We ask that you would help us each day to know what it means to live with Jesus as our Savior and as our Lord, rejoicing in the grace that we have because of him, uh, but also accepting the lordship that he has over us and the call to costly discipleship that he's given on our lives. And give us wisdom and uh, give us self-control and give us the strength of your spirit to be able to live lives that bring honor and glory to you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.